Amen. We're going to be looking at a passage that helps us to focus on our faithful God rather than looking uh, back to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, whether it's that knowledge um, in condemnation or seeking to look to it in terms of self-righteousness, but looking to the tree of life, always looking to our covenant keeper. Matthew chapter 5, we're reading in the Beatitudes, beginning at verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Father, we come to you desiring that we might press ever deeper into the fire of your presence, clothed in the garments of the Lord Jesus Christ, that uh, you might teach us what it means to come boldly before the throne of grace, that you might teach us what it means to see God, to see you, to see you in your holiness, to see you in your love, to see you as you really are. I pray, Father, that you would anoint the lips of this feeble, sinful vessel and that you would uh, quicken your word to each of our hearts, that we might glorify you even in our responses to this, your scripture. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. Well, this beatitude uh, presents a, a tension, and I think it's a tension that every believer experiences from time to time. On the one side, we've got the goal of this beatitude, they shall see God, and we all long for deeper communion with the Lord. We want to have an authentic relationship with the Lord, but we also wish that we had a a deeper and more authentic experience of this purity in heart, Uh, you know, the, 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 the condition for that goal being achieved. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, uh, every one of us will have to admit there are times where our hearts are not as pure as they ought to be, and uh, we're not satisfied with the relationship that we have with the Lord. I think all of us go through that experience. Now, I'm bringing that right up front because it's very easy to get discouraged when you're listening to preaching and thinking, oh man, my life is so out of line with the promises of Scripture. I'm not receiving what God has promised. And so as we look at this passage, what we're going to be looking at is growth in this beatitude, not perfection in this beatitude. Not a one of us is going to be 100% pure in heart till we get to heaven. Not a one of us is going to be able to see God as fully as we would like to see him until we get to heaven. Now, when we do get to heaven, uh, there's differences of view amongst theologians, whether we will actually see him with our eyes or just a theophany of him. You know, there are scriptures that indicate that if you really saw God in all of his glory, uh, it would kill you. And so God has to clothe himself, hide himself. And there's various uh, metaphors that he uses to do that. And there's others who say, no, in heaven, uh, when we are glorified, we will be able to see him with our eyes. But everybody agrees that when we're down here on earth, it's more akin to what Hebrews 11.27 talks about with, uh, with Moses. Moses is leaving Egypt. So this is, uh, this is even before he leads Israel. And it says, he left in faith as if seeing the one who is invisible. Hebrews 12, 11 verse 27. Not a literal seeing. It's as if seeing him who is invisible. So we are seeing one who's invisible. It's obviously talking about a metaphor here. And uh, commentators talk about it being a metaphor of the closeness that believers uh, desire to have with God. And, and by the way, this is the way it's been taken down through the last 2,000 years of, of history. Uh, various theologians and church fathers spoke of the beatific vision, that, 
that seeing of God that brings bliss to the soul. So we're going to be looking at what it means to have the beatific vision, okay? Uh, Charles Spurgeon preached a, a sermon on this once from another passage. And uh, uh, all Christians have this desire. I want more of God. Even in terms of closeness, uh, no one's going to be completely content with where they have arrived. And I think of Moses. I don't think there was anybody up to that time who had ever experienced the degree of closeness to God and the sense of his power uh, and, and the experience of his glory. And yet what does Moses ask in Exodus 33? Please show me your glory. And you read that and you're thinking, now wait a shake. What is it he's been seeing here? He's been talking with God face to face as a friend would talk. He sees the glory cloud. What does he mean? See my glory. Well, all of the saints of old have had this experience. They see God and it just gives them a hunger for more and more of God. So again, we're not talking perfection. We're talking growth. And I believe even in heaven, we're going to constantly be learning more and more of the depths of God. We're going to be constantly desiring more and more of the Lord. Now, commentators, just a little bit more background, commentators point out that the Old Testament passage that is most likely behind this beatitude and most fully uh, speaks of what's in this beatitude is Psalm 24, and I'm just going to read a few verses from it. The psalmist asks, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place? And so that's a longing to press into our upward calling. It's a longing to have deeper communion with the Lord, to stand before him in his holy place. So he says, who can do that? Here's the condition. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And then he defines in part what he means by having a pure heart. Who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, He shall receive blessing from the Lord. And then later he says, This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. And so that's what this sermon is all about. It's about seeking the face of the Lord. And uh, to use um, the uh, analogy in that psalm, uh, as we open the gates of our lives to see the King of glory coming in. That's what the sermon is going to be about. Now let's start with the word pure. The pure in heart. Uh, If you read commentators, and usually they don't say a whole lot, it's maybe a paragraph or or two on this verse, but they're divided on the meaning of this word for pure here. There are some who apply it to uh, inward moral purity, and there are others who apply it to inward integrity, or as uh, one commentator worded it, as a single-heartedness, single-mindedness. But I think that D.A. Carson is right when he says the dichotomy between these two options is a false one. It is impossible to have one without the other. They're both involved. Now, thankfully, we've got an inspired interpreter of this uh, beatitude, and a lot of commentators don't realize this, but we've been seeing that in reverse order, this beatitude is being given an exposition of by the Lord Jesus Christ in the rest of the sermon. So if you look at verse 27 and following, you see he talks about Adultery in the heart, verses 27 through 30. So that would be looking at the inward purity. Then he transitions over in verses 31 through 32 of breaking covenant, breaking the marriage covenant, which is a lack of integrity. They're not keeping the covenant that they had committed themselves to. And then he goes even further into the integrity side in verses 33 through 37, where he talks about people who are not true to their word. Their word is not as good in gold. They lack integrity within, and they're trying outwardly to appear to be truthful, but there's lack of integrity within. So you can see in Christ's exposition, there's both inward purity, there's inward integrity that he's calling us to have. Now, if you back up to verse 27, uh, we're going to, first of all, take a look at counterfeit purity that will let you down. You can work as hard as you want to, on the kind of outward purity that uh, Christ, uh, the counterfeits, he's going to be looking at. And you're not going to be opening up the gate so that the king of glory may come in. It's just not going to work. In fact, you're going to feel let down. You're going to feel dry. You're going to feel dusty. You're going to feel a sense of bondage. And ah, it's duty. Now, children have duties too. 
But if you are approaching purity of heart with a sense of bondage and slavery, you're not approaching it through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're trying to approach holiness, to use the metaphor that that Rodney talked about before, looking to the tree of knowledge and good and evil, either sensing condemnation sometimes or sensing self-righteousness, but we need to be looking through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in your outline, I've listed four counterfeits that the Pharisees were masters at. First counterfeit was social purity. And I call it social purity because everything was being measured by what other people were saying and doing and thinking about you. It's a social righteousness. You're looking for your sense of righteousness to what other people think. Uh, Verse 27, Matthew 5, 27. You have heard that it was said to those of old. And he repeats that in verse 31, verse 33, 38, 43, and in the other chapters. Now, what does he mean by that phrase? Well, he's referring to the oral traditions of the fathers, the oral traditions of the rabbis and the scribes and of the Pharisees, which, by the way, later on were written down in the Talmud. Okay? And they were... Uh, a mixture of Scripture. You can find some Scripture in the Talmud and additional laws that they felt men needed to follow, false interpretations of the Scripture, superstition, and some right interpretations of the Scripture. It's a a big hodgepodge uh, that you'll find in those oral traditions. But whenever Jesus spoke about those oral traditions, he's quoting from those, he always says, you have heard it said. When he's quoting from the Bible, he always, without exception, says, it is written. Very important that you understand that, because if you don't, you're going to fall victim to what many evangelicals have, to think that the Sermon on the Mount is overturning the Old Testament. That is a ridiculous concept, because in verses 17 through 20, he says, till heaven and earth passes away, not one jot or one tittle of the law will pass away. And he says, if you break even the least of the Old Testament commandments, you're going to be least in the kingdom of heaven. Ridiculous to think that he's overturning uh, the Old Testament. Ceremonial law even. How do we keep it? Well, there's no longer, now that the Messiah has come, we no longer literally keep it in a temple, but we keep it through Jesus. And so all of the Old Testament applies in one sense or another. But people get confused and they say, hey, but this you shall not commit adultery, is in the Old Testament. And I say, well, yeah, it's in the Talmud too. Okay? So the question is, is he quoting the Old Testament? Is he quoting the Talmud? He's quoting the Talmud. And what's going on here is that the Pharisees had truncated the law to a mere outward act and were ignoring what the Old Testament said about the heart. See, Christ had a lot of problems with the Pharisees. Uh, sometimes the Pharisees misapplied the Old Testament, and we saw that was the case with the lex talionis, you know, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Uh, sometimes they took part of the law and they ignored another part of the law. Uh, sometimes they, um, uh, 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 they um, took the law out of context, and then sometimes they added man-made rules to the law. But always, in all of those situations, it was the Pharisees' opinions that became the standard for Israel not God's word, not what God thought. And this is what upset Christ. You see, these Pharisees, uh, they were not teaching and saying, hey, I want you guys to check the scriptures to see whether what I'm saying is true. They didn't want them to be Bereans. No, they were the standard for righteousness. Sometimes they got it right, sometimes they got it wrong, but they were the standard of righteousness. And Jesus was on a warpath against the Pharisees because of the way they substituted their authority for the Bible. And it's a problem whether they add to the law or whether they take away from the law. It's still a social standard. So in verse 27, they get something right. Jesus is not going to say, oh, the Pharisees, they think you can't commit adultery. We're going to overturn that law. Okay, that's not what he's going to say. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. What he was going to confront was the Pharisees bragging that they perfectly kept that law. They had summarized all of the law into 613 commandments. Jesus said, no, no, that's not right. They've missed a few. For example, they've missed Proverbs 6.25, which says, do not lust after her beauty in your heart. Okay, They left that out. They left out the 
the, the account of, of David and Bathsheba and the uh, account of Potiphar's wife and Psalm 51, all of which highlight the fact that adultery actually starts in the heart. They had an outward righteousness, much like the, the Muslims of today, who you talk to them about uh, coveting. I mean, we were talking with one person who said, yeah, if you covet this beautiful pencil, I had a click pencil there, if you covet that in your heart and you want that for yourself, the Bible says that you have sinned. And we st- if you covet after a woman in your heart, and they said, well, nobody could be saved then. And we said, yeah, that's the whole point. <laughs> we are sinners, and God goes after the heart. But that's exactly where the Pharisees were at uh, back in, in that day. And so what had happened is they had narrowed the focus of the law. Now, later on in the chapter, Jesus is going to be telling them that they had also added new laws to the biblical law. And we'll dealing with that in a little bit. But here I'm just trying to prove that they were content with a social standard of righteousness. What mattered to a lot of people back then was not what the Bible said, but what are the Pharisees going to think of me? If I do this, what's somebody else going to be thinking of me? So here's my first question this morning. What kind of a morality do you hold to? Does your heart long to be right with God's standards of purity? Or is your primary concern with what other people will think of you? See, this is really a test to where your vision is at. Is your vision on seeing God or is your vision on what other people will think? See, our heart's desire should be, Lord, I want you. I really don't care what other people think. I want to know what you think. I want to please you. I want to be drawn into a closer life with you. And I can assure you that the church of Jesus Christ is just as rife with the Phariseeism of this sort that truncates God's law as it is with the sort that adds to God's law. Uh, both of them are forms of social righteousness. We're not sat- we, we shouldn't be satisfied with social righteousness And those who are, many times they don't want to take the effort to dig deeper into the Lord, dig deeper into their relationship with Him, because um, it's just not where their vision is at. So let's take a look at some examples of social righteousness. Today, drunkenness is frowned upon, but gluttony is tolerated. So you who would never get drunk, are you quite willing to be gluttons? You who would never think of committing adultery, do you flip through the lingerie catalogs that come unsolicited to your home? You who would never dream of being peeping toms, you know, peeping tom is one of those perverts who peeps into people's windows, bedroom windows and and houses. You would never dream of being a peeping tom. Are you a peeping tom with the movies that you watch? See, that ought to be just as offensive and disgusting to us as being a peeping Tom looking into somebody's uh, window. Today, addiction to cigarettes is frowned upon, but addiction to caffeine, you know, and drinking um, Mountain Dew and coffee and tea and other things like that, that's okay. That's the evangelical drug of choice. Uh, But I want you to notice I'm not saying you can't drink those things. Uh, There's actually growing studies that caffeine has got some health benefits for you in moderation. What I'm talking about here is addiction. There are certain addictions we say, oh, that's terrible. And there's other addictions we say, no problem, no problem. Now, of course, a pharisaical attitude is going to immediately latch onto what I say, and they tend to jump from one extreme to the other, and they're going to say, oh, you know, we better stay away from caffeine because there's danger there. And uh, <clears throat> after all, Pastor Kaiser preached, you know, on uh, it being an addiction. Oh, that'd be legalism, right? So you go from antinomianism to legalism, and you say nobody can drink uh, any, uh, any uh, caffeine. Uh, we don't want to go in that uh, direction. <clears throat> uh, when your life is governed by what other people think, you'll end up with bondage and occasional bouts of misery because now your sense of purity comes from being a people pleaser. Understand that? When your life is governed by what other people think, it's not your heart and God it's what others think, then what's going to happen is you're going to go through bouts of misery because of your sense of purity coming from being a people pleaser. In fact, ironically, you're going to end up with areas of your life that are lawless and areas of life that are legalistic. 
And this, there's just so many manifestations of this. Um, smoking. Now, I have chosen not to smoke for personal reasons, but if you think that smoking is a sin, you have added to the Scripture. Nowhere in the Scripture does it say that a smoking is a sin. Now, you might conclude that smoking might be dangerous to your health, and, um, and uh, therefore we ought to avoid it, but you ought to be always cautious about allowing science to dictate what is righteous or what is not righteous, okay? Uh, because that's a, another form of social righteousness or social purity. It's got to be the Scripture and the Scripture alone that determines where our heart is at. Now, God sometimes calls us individually to give up an idol, calls us, say, you know, Phil, I, I just don't want you involved in a certain thing. But then what happens, I'm submitting to God in righteousness, but then I impose my giving up an idol. It might be golf. You know, maybe I've uh, uh, been playing golf so long. All of you who know me know I don't play golf too much or too well. <laughs> but, you know, for some people, it could become a real idol. And they're so into that that God says, I want you to step back and I want you over the next year not to play any golf whatsoever. Well, all of a sudden, this guy becomes a Pharisee and he says, I don't, I don't think anybody else should play golf either. <laughs> can you see we can vacillate back and forth? On this, I knew people in Canada who were very fond of saying, we are not under law, but under grace. And my, my dad was a big opponent uh, of this because he could see the, the direction and the rationalization that people were using this on. But anyway, they ignored the Old Testament law, so there's a sense in which they were antinomian, but God has built our souls to need law. And so when there's a vacuum, you've thrown out God's law, automatically you bring in men's laws. And so believe it or not, there were people back then who said it was really sinful for men to be wearing beards. That's a hippie. I mean, hippies do that. <laughs> you shouldn't be wearing a beard. And uh, women were told that they should not, uh, you know, wear makeup or wear jewelry. Everybody was told you can't play cards. Why? Because people sometimes gamble with cards and you can't, uh, you can't uh, watch movies and you can't uh, uh, drink and uh, any number of uh, uh, things that they said uh, people could not be involved in. One of them was syncopated music is sinful. And I said, where's that in the Bible? And, uh, oh, you should have seen the, the, the incredible uh, logistics they went through to show that that was sin. So at the very time that they're taking away God's laws, they're adding man's laws. Or another way of saying it is at the very time that they are antinomian, they are legalists. Those two always go together. Don't think that an antinomian is not going to be legalistic. He's always going to be a legalist. It's inevitable. It may take a while, but man's heart is built for law. And so if you throw out the law, automatically you're going to be taking in something uh, to substitute uh, with it. In contrast, the pure in heart, he wants to see God. He doesn't care what man thinks. He wants what God thinks. Okay? His heart is being offered up to the Lord. Now, let's give a few more examples so we can understand what social righteousness is. We have Christians who have thrown out God's Old Testament laws on economics, which are free market. So they're antinomian in that sense. They don't like the Old Testament laws. But they have substituted a paradigm of socialism and they have said, you are ungodly if you don't vote for magistrates who are ruling by Romans 12 love rather than Romans 13 justice. You are almost treated as if you are in sin if you're, if you're not in agreement with uh, you know, universal medical coverage, social security, uh, food stamps, uh, welfare, any number of things. That's the loving thing to do. And we say, no, the loving thing to do would be to empty your pockets for the poor, not to be stealing from somebody else's pockets. But they don't get this, okay? They, they, they are not only taking away God's law because they don't like the free market economics of the Old Testament, but now they're adding new impositions of socialistic uh, laws upon, upon the people. Let me give you a more subtle example that could very easily affect us. Very easy to point the finger outside. 
There are people who latch onto one standard of courtship that you can find in the Bible, and they ignore other standards of courtship. And there is, um, I didn't quite look at my booklet, but five or six, I think, other standards uh, that you can find depending on the situation. There's principles that God gives. And um, so you can, you can fall into this problem of a social righteousness even if you are following a biblical mandate. So if you looked at Genesis chapter 2, you might come to the conclusion that both the, both the, the groom and the, the bride, prospective, should be totally passive, have no choice whatsoever in who they get married. It should be totally arranged because isn't that the way God did it? I mean, this is the pattern God has set up, arranged marriages, forget courtship, forget betrothal, and they want this imposed on everyone because this was the standard right from the beginning of time. Now, there are others who will look at, at uh, Isaac getting his wife, and he was kind of passive, and there was arrangement, but the woman had veto power. And if you look at Jacob, uh, you might come to the conclusion that the man ought to be very active in pursuing uh, a wife, and he ought to have a long courtship. I'm not sure how many people advocate that one, but <laughs> have a long courtship. And, uh, you know, work for seven years for your prospective father-in-law. And I do know father-in-laws who would like to impose that. <clears throat> uh, but um, uh, you could look at Hosea. And in Hosea, you see example of, of uh, betrothal in which it's a time where uh, romance is developed between the two. And you see other examples where there is courtship and romance uh, that are there. And you'll find people who park on one of those passages as the paradigm from the Bible, and they set it up as a standard forever. And because they can cite chapter and verse, now you have to follow it, okay? They don't realize the Scripture gives some liberty in this area. Now, where is... There, there are some of these people who say, man, I'm living in a circle, and I know plenty of people who live in circles of one thing that's a betrothal model, and they feel like, this is not working for us, but we don't dare do anything different. But where their vision is at is, I will be judged by other people, right? Their vision is not, what does God want and what is going to be healthy for uh, our son and our daughter? Their vision is, what is going on with others? Now, I'm in the process of writing a book that outlines a wide range of biblical options and how to apply the biblical principles to your unique situations using the wisdom that God uh, gives to you. And I'm writing it because I've seen both antinomianism in homeschooling circles, and by antinomianism I mean they say, who cares? Just do whatever you want. Okay? They're not looking to the Word of God to give them guidance. And I've also seen legalism, where people will take one and they will apply it broadly to everybody. Now, does a person, does a family have a liberty to choose one for their daughter? Yeah, and they might choose another pattern for a, a different daughter or a son because of the differences that exist between them. But my point is, it's so easy for us to get social righteousness in uh, this area of purity. Let me give you another example. In the 10 years that this church has been in existence, I think I've had at least three TRs, uh, that's the label for truly reformed, uh, come up to me and say, hey, your order of worship is not a biblical order of worship. And I've said, oh, great, uh, what, what is the biblical order of worship? And uh, he describes it and I said, yeah, where's that in the Bible? And he said, well, that's the way the Puritans have always done it. And I said, well, that's great, but can you find that in the Bible? Uh, I can show you the order of worship that I have from the Bible. And uh, at least one of those I can remember uh, was also telling me we ought not to have uh, violins. I think there was a violin playing that one Sunday. Drums and guitar, I think, was playing on that Sunday. We ought not to have that. And I said, oh, you, you believe that there shouldn't be any instruments in, in, in worship? And he said, no, no, I think piano is the only appropriate... Now, piano, and I, I asked him, where would you get that from? If you're going to have some instrument in worship, why not all of the other instruments that are listed there? But I could not convince this guy. He, was, he said, we just don't do it that way. It's not proper. But it was a sense of social righteousness. So let me tell you, we Reformed people can fall into exactly this trap ourselves. Now, there was two, at least two, people who were not TRs, but were Reformed people who came into our worship service, and they held to the covenant renewal 
uh, worship uh, pattern, and we're following covenant renewal, but there's several variations of covenant renewal worship, okay? And he, he came up, um, um, and, and there was two of them, but I'm thinking of one in particular, and it was saying, you know, this is not a biblical order of worship. And I said, well, which order do you guys use? And he mentioned a book, and I said, oh, yeah, that's, that's a great book. And uh, the order of worship that they use is one of the five orders of worship that we've seen clearly in the Scripture. But let me show you from the Scripture how ours is much more clearly laid out than the one that's in that Bible. Even the jots and tittles of our order of worship can be found in the Scripture. And he could see that, but he was still saying, no, you shouldn't do it because this is the way that book says we ought to do it. And we ought to have some kind of uniformity in the reform camp. What's going on here is there's a social righteousness. It might be good. I have no problem with them following that order, but they're imposing it on others. Okay, it's a kind of legalism that uh, frequently can come out. So for some of you, the Phariseeism may not come from adding to the word, or it may not come from uh, taking away from the word. Your subjection to Phariseeism comes from feeling bad when you're doing the right thing, but other people are judging you. Your heart is still not yet totally focused with a vision upon the Lord. Now, sometimes you may feel good because the Pharisees aren't breathing down your neck. (laughs) You know, you're going along uh, with what they have to say. But let me assure you, all social standards of purity will rob you of the kingdom blessings. Don't look to man. It leads to bondage. Look to the scriptures alone for purity. Now, there's a second counterfeit, and that is outward purity. Now, you might not be a person who's subject at all to social purity. In fact, uh, you've got such an adversarial spirit that if somebody tells you to do it one way, you'll do it the exact opposite way, okay? This doesn't bother you at all. What other people care? Uh, think about, who cares? Where you're at, though, is that you are skin deep in your purity uh, it, because you've set a standard for yourself, And uh, you've conformed to that standard, and you feel quite comfortable with yourself on that standard. But Christ goes on to say in verse 28, But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus told the Pharisees in verse 23 that they cleaned the outside of the cup, but inside it was filthy. And in blasting them, all he was doing is he was taking them back to the Old Testament. What does Psalm 51 say? Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Psalm 73, 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, to such as are pure of heart. So he was not overturning the Old Testament like a lot of uh, anti-theonomists have said. He was interpreting the way the Old Testament really was intended to be interpreted. He was correcting the Pharisees. For Asaph, happiness was not outward conformity, it was purity of heart. His heart was being offered up and actually was being drawn more and more. It's an odd thing, but it's a scary thing to be in the fire of God's holiness, and yet your heart is strangely attracted to it. When you've got purity of heart, you want it. There's there's a sense of distance from it, and yet you want it as well. Dr. Krabendam used to say, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. And the Pharisees had completely skipped the matter of their heart. They were quite content with the outward. What about you? Are you as diligent in guarding your thought life as you are your social life? You know, maybe you have not, you know, sworn at your boss, but inside your heart you have. Maybe you have not felt someone's fanny, but with your mind you did. And let me assure you, What is in your heart will eventually flow out and express itself in actions. Christ said, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. I remember the first time in in Ethiopia, I, I was just flabbergasted. The first time a cuss word came out of my mouth. And uh, I was... In a van, it was in the back of the van, I was surprised that the driver even heard me, but he happened to be a very strict teacher in that um, boarding school that I was at, 
And he slammed on the brakes, pulled over to the side, turned around, glared at me and said, get out of the van. And I was so flabbergasted. How did this? I've never sworn in my life before. Where did this come from? And it began to dawn on me. You know, I had begun swearing in my heart. And all of a sudden, in a moment of weakness, it came out. That's what he's saying here. He's saying, my, my mom's never even heard this story. <laughs> Unfortunately, she's here, so now she gets the... <laughs> but it, it was very, very embarrassing. But that's what Jesus said. Out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. You can never enter into the, the joy of these beatitudes until your heart is beginning to be drawn out to God. That's what he's after. He's not out after outward morality. Morality is not enough. You know, most people can come up with a morality, just like the Pharisees did. Yours might not be quite as strict as their morality. But I love the words of Thomas Boston, a great Puritan writer. He said, Morality can drown a man as fast as vice. A vessel may sink with gold or with dung. <laughs> I love that. I love that. He's saying morality is not going to cut it because none of us is going to be perfect in this life anyway, are we? And yet that's what people put their confidence in is this outward morality. They're conformed to some kind of a standard. And he is saying, morality can drown a man as fast as vice. A vessel may sink with gold or with dung. And so no matter, no amount of morality is going to please God. Christianity, true Christianity, is intent on offering up our heart to God with liberty, with thanksgiving, with the power of the Spirit. Okay? So Christ countered a mere social conformity, a mere outward conformity. And then in verses 31 through 32, he counters a technical kind of purity. Now, you guys all know some of these horrendous court cases where the guy was shown to be guilty, but he got off on a technicality, right? Well, this is what's going on with these Pharisees. They're using technicalities to get around the law. He says, furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. And by the way, if you read Deuteronomy 24, you'll see the Talmud didn't quite quote this right. Uh, or the oral traditions didn't quite quote it right because the Talmud hadn't gotten written for another 100 years about. So Christ corrects them. They, uh, see, the, uh, the, the Bible was trying to correct sinful behavior and suppress sinful behavior. They turned that into a command. Anyway, Christ corrects them. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Now, we don't have time to get into an exposition of the passage, but uh, there was two schools. There was a school of Hillel that interpreted the words in Deuteronomy 24, Erwath the Bar, as an excuse for any cause divorce. And it's true that the word, the phrase there, is not a really refined phrase. It could mean a number of different things. Uh, the closest you could narrow the word down is something repulsive. And so Hillel thought, hey, if you find your wife repulsive, get rid of her. Yeah, any reason uh, could, if he, and one of the reasons he gave was she keeps burning your dinner, okay? Any reason would qualify if she's repulsive to you. But when Christ gets into more detail on this in Matthew chapter 19, he pointed out that even though their interpretation is technically possible, it totally misses the spirit of Deuteronomy 24, which was given to limit divorce, not to open it up. So they're playing around with the Scripture rather than submitting to the spirit of Scripture. And what it did is it revealed a lack of integrity. Now, if you have a heart that's looking for ways in which you can get around a commandment, I guarantee you, you're going to find, up, uh, find out some kind of technical way in which you can satisfy your conscience. You may not be able to satisfy everybody, but you'll be satisfied yourself. And those technicalities start so young. I think I've told you the story of uh, when I was in preschool. I don't remember the exact age, three, four, five, somewhere around there. And I walked into my parents' bedroom and I saw some money on the countertop, and I really wanted that money. I was out in Ethiopia, and, and I thought, you know, I knew that money can buy candy. And I thought, this is really great. I'd love to have that money, but 
more I thought about it, I just realized my conscience could not let me get away with this. So I left the room and I thought a little bit. Then I came back into the room and I said to myself, oh, there's money out here. This could be stolen. I need to put it in a safe place. So I took the money. I don't know if my mom knows of this story either. (laughs) I took the money. I crawled. There was a crawl space under our house. I went under the house and I buried it in the dirt. And then I waited a day. Then I went back under the house and was playing. And look at what I found, some money. And I felt conscience completely free to be able to spend this money. Now, it was a pretty primitive, pretty pathetic uh, excuse for freeing my conscience. But you know what? When you look at the excuses that people give for sin today, they're just as, as pathetic. They really are. It's just amazing, the excuses that people give. There was a pastor who was in the process of divorcing his wife, and he had talked a woman in the congregation into divorcing her husband so that they could get married. He was immediately put under discipline, but he refused to repent. And I remember talking to him for two hours, going through the Scriptures, trying to convince him that what he was doing was unbiblical. And then he shocked me by saying, well, I know it's unbiblical, Phil. I said, why are you doing it? He said, God has led me to divorce my wife and to marry this woman. And so even though it's not God's revealed will, uh, His perfect will revealed in the Scripture, I think is the way He worded it, it is God's permissive will. And I told him, I can guarantee you God did not lead you because He does not contradict Himself. But He just would not, He would not bend. For Him, this was all the technicality He needed. God has led me, and so I feel comfortable with it. I won't give you uh, the rest of of that uh, story, but... I'm bringing that up not to say, because, you know, here I have utter blindness as a child there, and here is utter blindness there, and it'd be very easy for us to shake our heads at this pastor, but um, I can forget that I do exactly the same things myself. I have on more than one occasion told a fib or embellished a story or thrown out uh, a statistic that... um, and it was just a, a guess, but I've thrown it out as a statistic. And the Spirit of God has convicted me that I need to not only repent, and I repent to Him, Lord, why do I do this? Why do I do this? But He's convicted me. You not only need to repent to me, you need to humble yourself by repenting to others. It's like, ah, well, Lord, they don't know about the situation anyway. It's not going to make any difference. And I come up with all kinds of What I'm thinking of here is technicalities, and as soon as they're coming to my mind, I'm thinking, these are pretty ridiculous excuses. Why am I arguing? By the way, if you try to argue with the Holy Spirit, give it up. He'll always win. Even if it takes a year or two of misery in your life, he will always win. So I just realized, okay, I know that if I don't do this, it's going to put a distance between me and God, and my heart's desire is that I may see God. I want to be drawn closer to him, so I I will confess And it's a humbling thing to confess. Here you are, a pastor. You say, well, you know, that illustration that I gave was kind of embellished a little bit. And it's kind of an embarrassing thing to do. And you'd think, as painful as that is, I would learn. And yet here I am, this past Thursday, doing exactly the same thing in the conference that I was at. Gave an embellished illustration, and I threw out a statistic that was just a guess. said, you know, 50%. I'm thinking to myself, you know, afterwards, as soon as I said that, I, shouldn't, I should say, you know, maybe it is 50%, but I have no idea. But throwing out a statistic, and I'm going through immediately, arguing with myself that I really don't need to tell these people that this was, this, this was wrong, but you can't argue with the Holy Spirit. I even went to my wife and asked her, well, honey, do you remember this story that uh, I told you? Do you think that uh, maybe it was, she says, no, I, I don't, she wasn't helping me out at all. <laughs> Because I do have a bad memory, so I was hoping I was remembering it wrong. And so the next morning, Friday morning at the conference, I had to tell the people, look, uh, what I told you was wrong, and I should not have said that, and I just want to have my heart right uh, with, with the Holy Spirit. And uh, anyway, <clears throat> my point is, our hearts are so prone to doing what the Pharisees did. It's easy to read over these passages and not apply them to ourselves. And this doesn't even have to be other people. You can be reading the Scripture, and you come across a passage, and you realize the uncomfortable implications, and you're thinking, 
I'm not sure I want the passage to say that. And you know where that's going. And you have to immediately cry out to God, Oh, Lord, help me to love your law instead of rationalizing over your law. This is a social righteousness. We want to have an an outward conformity rather than a heart purity. So if you know in your heart's heart that the Scripture is pointing to A, (coughs) even if you can successfully argue that it's pointing to B, you don't have a pure heart. Okay, that's the point. You know in your heart's heart. and You could argue with me, and I wouldn't be able to convince you on this point B, but the Spirit has convicted you. No, it's pointing to A, and you're saying it's pointing to B. Give it up. Give it up and say, Lord, I want a pure heart. I'm going to give it to you. Final kind of counterfeit purity that Christ blasts here is seen in verses 33 through 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. And Jesus is saying that if you have to say, I swear I'm telling the truth, there's something wrong going on. There's lack of integrity uh, in your heart. Verse 37, Jesus says that our word needs to be as good as gold. Whatever is more than these is from the evil one. So constant affirmations of purity don't make you poor. Constant affirmations of integrity don't make you a man of integrity. Now I'm just noticing here, it's 1120 and I'm not anywhere near <laughs> anywhere near finished. Those are the counterfeits. I hate to leave you with the counterfeits, but I think that's what I'm going to do today because I think we're going over. But I want us to get in. Maybe next week we'll pick up where we left off. I want us to get into the glories of what true heart purity is about and the glories of seeing God. That joy indescribable and full of glory that makes it all worthwhile, the humiliation of confessing your sin and putting it away from you. And so we'll pick up next week. I, I, uh, even this morning, I was thinking I was going to get through this no problem, but uh, we will finish it next week, uh, Lord willing. Father, we recognize that our hearts are so deceitful. Jeremiah says we can't even understand our own heart, let alone the hearts of others. And yet, Father, I thank you for the faithfulness of your Holy Spirit to convict us and to move us and to gently lead us into righteousness and to the health and to the joy and to the encouragement and to the blessing that you have purchased for your sons and daughters. And I pray that each one here would Find that joy, indescribable and full of glory, a joy that we can't even rationally explain to others because it's a joy in the midst of circumstances sometimes that don't seem joyful. Father, I pray that we would be pure of heart as we continue to think about what it means to be pure of heart, what it means to see you next week, that uh, our hearts truly would be set on fire by your scriptures. Forgive us for those times where we have settled for Phariseeism, whether it's a Phariseeism that misinterprets the law or a Phariseeism that subtracts from the law or that adds to your law. Uh, I pray, Father, you'd purge our hearts from that. We don't want to have a mere social righteousness. Uh, We don't want to have our hearts judged by others or a sense of approval by others. But we want to have hearts that are so on fire with a vision of you and what you accomplished through Christ on the cross and what you have uh, ordained from before the foundation of the world, the, the, the works that you have ordained back there, that we should walk in them. The Father, it would be the easiest thing in the world to step into this whole new world of uh, your, your plan rather than our plans. And so I pray for your blessings upon this people. 
the fact, Father, we've not gotten into the glories, I pray that there would not be any accusations of the enemy that would be able to uh, accuse these uh, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ and make them feel miserable during the next week, but that they would have hope that they need not uh, look to man uh, to find this pleasure, but they could look to your throne. And even though we have sin, as we walk through the ladder of these beatitudes, whether it's every day or even moment by moment, having to go back as beggars uh, who have nothing in our hands that we can offer, but saying, Lord, I can't create a pure heart within me. Your scripture says there is no one who can create this pure heart, that we would receive it from your throne. And Father, we do receive this pure heart from you for this day. And we pray, Father, that even if we fall an hour from now, we would not beat up on ourselves, but we'd go back through this ladder of these beatitudes and quickly, quickly find the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. Minister in the hearts of these, your people. Help them not, Father, to focus on the the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which brings nothing but condemnation. We don't want this constant knowledge of sins. We want with Paul to be able to put those things which are past behind us and to press onward into the upward call that we have in you that uh, Satan would not allow uh, would not be allowed to beat us over the head with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil but we would quickly find this tree of life that energizes us fills us with hope fills us with faith fills us with confidence father give us the sanctification of the spirit not the sanctification of uh, the Pharisees. We love you, and it's our desire to grow in love to you. We recognize, even when we say we love you, how little our love really is. And yet I thank you for the love that your Spirit has given. And we glory in the fact that your Spirit draws our hearts out to you. Father, set our hearts on fire. Draw our hearts into your throne. May we be able to say, Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day instead of saying, oh, how I hate your law. It is a terror in my bones. May we approach your word and may we approach life through the cross of Jesus Christ, through that tree of life that Rodney uh, preached on earlier. And we'll be sure to give you the praise and the honor and the glory in Christ's name. Amen.